Mike. Lauren. Mike, if you just if you just happened to go to the pharmacy one day, like you wanted to get a hot pocket, and the line was really, really long, and someone said you could skip the line, but there's a catch. The hot pocket may be the difference between life and death. Would you skip the line? Uh normally I wouldn't eat Hot Pockets, but for this thought experiment, I'll say yes, I would skip the line. All right. I'm not sure that would be everyone's answer, but that's exactly what we're going to talk about on today's Gadget Lab. Except, of course, we're not talking about Hot Pockets. We're talking about the COVID-19 vaccine. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, and I'm joined remotely by my co-host, Wired senior editor, Michael Calore. Hello. Hi. He who does not eat Hot Pockets. All right, we have a full house today. Our science and health reporting team is joining us. I'm very excited about this. First, Wired staff writer Megan Multeni. Hey, Megan. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Mike. And we're also joined by Wired contributor Marin McKenna from Atlanta. Marin, thanks so much for joining us. I think this is your first time on Gadget Lab. I am so excited. So COVID-19 vaccine rollouts are happening, and the information we're getting about vaccine supply and who's next in line to get one seems to change pretty much every day. It just hasn't been a very straightforward rollout because of the scale and complexity of the vaccination effort. Different vaccines require different dosages, and different states have different distribution strategies. And new variants of the virus are raising questions about how effective these vaccines are at fighting all of the strains of the virus. It's just, it's a lot. So that's why we've invited our Wired Science reporters on to help clarify this complicated story of COVID vaccinations. Both Megan and Marin have been covering the coronavirus for Wired since the early days of the pandemic. We also asked our listeners to send in their questions, and we're going to get to those later in the show. But first, let's go through some of our own. Mike, would you like to start? Sure. Um Something that we've been hearing a lot about recently is our new president, Joe Biden, and his plan that he has set a goal to vaccinate 100 million Americans in his first 100 days in office. How is that looking? Don't all jump at once. (laughs) So let's stipulate to start with that the Biden administration is eight days old at this point. And so... Maybe we should give them a little bit of slack. But the Trump administration said that they would vaccinate 20 million Americans by the end of last year. That would be 40 million doses, right? Two doses in each of 20 million arms. And they didn't get anywhere close. As of this morning, the entire amount of vaccination delivered in the United States was about 18 and a half million doses and about 3 million people, a little bit more than that, had gotten both of their doses. So we are very behind the curve. Now, what the the Biden administration has a lot of plans to get us out back out in front of it, but they have a really heavy hill to climb in order to get us anywhere near where we ought to be. Thanks, Marin. And thanks also for for making clear that this is as of this morning. We're taping this on Thursday, January 28th, and you all will be hearing this after the fact. Uh, Marin, what are some of the ideas being put forward right now by government officials and health experts to speed up this vaccination process? So one of the complexities of this is that we look at the vaccination effort and we say, oh, it's behind and it's slow. 
but it's behind and it's slow for a couple of different reasons. There's the problem of not as much vaccine as was forecast getting out from the manufacturers to the states. And then there's also the problem of the states, which have the jurisdiction for public health in the United States, getting vaccine out from all the various places where they're storing it into the people who need it. Both of those are behind. The answers to them though are different. We can, the, the Biden administration has said they're going to buy more vaccine. They've said they're going to release any reserves of vaccine that were held back to guarantee second doses. They're talking about creating pop-up vaccination centers and maybe having mobile teams and maybe having mass vaccination sites where thousands of people go in at a time with the help of DOD and FEMA. All of those though don't solve the current problem of the states not having been given the money or the logistical help to organize the vaccination campaigns that they have now. And so all of that has gone so slowly, has no tech help, is incredibly frustrating. And from where we are now with that to the things that the Biden administration has said they want to do, that's a pretty big delta. It's going to take a while to get across that. Actually, I wanted to ask about the funding for vaccines. This is something that I, I slacked to Megan recently and said, can you explain to me how this works? We keep hearing about how the states need more funding. But, um, you know, I think I had kind of thought that maybe our existing healthcare infrastructure would sort of be sufficient enough to just get shots in arms the way that we do for flu season each year. So tell me a little bit about this. Like, why is it that we need billions more dollars to make this work? Um, what exactly does this money go towards? What kind of specialists need to be hired? Basically disabuse us of the notion that it's just a quick shot in the arm and our existing healthcare infrastructure could, could take care of this. Yeah, it's a legit question. But the one of the underlying assumptions that the public health system was adequately funded to do this from the start is unfortunately incorrect. In fact, the public health system in the United States has been progressively defunded, not just throughout the Trump administration, but back into the Obama years, back since about, I think, 2008 is when their budgets started to be cut. So every year for things like routine immunizations and flu shots and sexually transmitted disease tracking for a decade now, Public health departments have been saying, we just don't, do not have the funding to do this and we need help. And really, Congress has not been listening. So they're starting from a deficit position. Then there's really no other vaccination campaign that's like what we're asking them to do now. If you think about getting your flu shot every year, if you're one of the people who gets it, and I hope you are, that's usually delivered in a local pharmacy or very often in a workplace. So we've relied on employers to pick up the slack in the public health system. You may have noticed that not very many people are going to the office right now. So that recruiting of big workplaces to deliver shots, first, it doesn't fit the prioritization that the CDC set in place as a strong recommendation of who should be vaccinated first, but also that venue literally doesn't exist because so few people are going to workplaces. So what are the other things that are different about a COVID vaccination site? Like how, in what ways does a COVID vaccination site look different than, a, than any other kind of vaccination site? So first, social distancing, right? 
You can't just line everybody up the way you'd line up for just about anything else if you think about getting a flu shot at a pharmacy where everyone's sitting in the chairs along the wall. If you only have to sit in, in one out of six chairs, then you suddenly have a very long line. Um, so you have to social distance people. Uh, it's a novel vaccine. There have been some reactions to it recorded. So first you have to check people off for any pre-existing conditions before you give it to them. And then you have to have them sit around for a certain period of time afterward, which really slows down the throughput into what could otherwise be, a, or for other vaccines, is a pretty efficient process. And then there's a lot of tracking that's involved. One of the requirements of doing this vaccination campaign was that every single person who gets a shot, both their identity and the identity of the shot that they get, the individual lot that came from the manufacturer, has to be recorded in a national database within 24 hours. And so all of that paperwork adds up to a, a lot of burden on that encounter that seems to be just simply getting an injection, but is more complex than that. So are there countries around the world who are doing this right? And can we copy them? Yeah. So one of the countries that has really showed up to be a model of how to roll out vaccinations efficiently um, has been Israel. They, While they were earlier in the pandemic, um, they were kind of a model for how not to roll out going back to school after they saw a number of outbreaks in schools. Um, it seems like they have really figured out the vaccination distribution strategy a lot better than some other nations. So I think uh, currently more than a quarter of its citizens have had at least one dose of COVID vaccine. Um, they're leading the world in terms terms of the uh, proportion of their population that had been vaccinated. I think there was a, a recent three-day period where they they gave out more shots um, than the U.S. had altogether. <laughs> so um, I think one of the most interesting things is that, you know, nearly 75% of their citizens over the age of 60 have already all gotten, gotten their first shot, and they're projecting that the entire population will be vaccinated by the end of March. Um, and Yuri Friedman at The Atlantic had a really nice piece this week breaking down why that is, and it's nothing flashy or um, sexy. It's just having this um, history and legacy of a really efficient um, and well-coordinated national healthcare system. The way um, Israel has kind of a an interesting um, kind of cooperative nonprofit health maintenance organization that offer um, healthcare to all of its citizens. They have a single um, electronic medical record system. So it's just it's a lot easier to roll something like that out when you have um, you know kind of this this top down streamlined approach. You don't have this fractured um, healthcare system like we have in the U.S., where you have a lot of for profit, you have nonprofit, you have lot, fifty states you have to deal with. Um, it's just it's a lot more streamlined. Um, and so that's been one of the things that has been credited with allowing them to roll out vaccines um, so quickly. Another thing they did was they kind of early on um, said, you know, we're going to be a good pilot place to roll out vaccines because we have this this solid public health infrastructure and we're small and we can and a lot of the big um, vaccine makers, including Pfizer, were like, yeah, like, let's get you guys vaccines. So they've actually over procured. They have more um, doses than they need um, at this point. So I think both of those things play a factor. And I think the lesson is that places that already had pre-existing strong public health infrastructure and like really well-functioning healthcare systems are just also doing better at vaccine distribution. Um, it's kind of not rocket science in that sense. 
Can we talk a little bit about the vaccines themselves? I think at this point, a lot of people probably understand the very, very basics of how they're, you know, there are two different vaccines, they work slightly differently, and um, that the guidance has been for people to get two doses. But I'm wondering, we're still aiming for two shots per arm, or at some point, are we going to possibly switch to single dosage and speed up the process? So right now, in the United States, we've got two vaccines that got emergency authorizations from the Food and Drug Administration. Both of those vaccines are based on the same technology, mRNA technology, but they are slightly different. One's made by Pfizer, the other's made by the company Moderna, and the their being slightly different expresses itself in ways like the dosing interval between the first dose and the second dose is different. For Pfizer, it's 21 days. For Moderna, it's 28 days. At the point at which you get the second dose in the clinical trials for the Pfizer vaccine, you are something like 52% protected. For the Moderna vaccine, just at the point where you're supposed to get the second dose, you're already 80% protected. So they they clearly don't work in the body in exactly the same way, even though the, the technology is fundamentally the same. But you need two doses either way, whichever vaccine you have, because the first dose kind of wakes up your immune system to this novel thing coming in. And then it's the second dose that really wamps up that immune reaction and makes you fully 95% protected. The conversation has been, given that the vaccine campaign is so messed up and vaccine isn't flowing from the manufacturers to the states or from the states into people as fast as it should, should we use up as much vaccine as we've got and make sure as many people as possible are partially protected Or should we keep back some doses and make sure that a smaller number of people are as protected as we can get them? If we used up all the vaccine in first doses, we would be relying on the manufacturers to make sure that they make enough vaccine to make sure that those second doses happen. There's beginning to be some discussion that maybe it's safe to go beyond that 21-day or 28-day lag between doses and push it out a bit more. An advisory council to the World Health Organization said a few days ago that they think that at least, I believe it was for the Moderna vaccine, that you could go out to about 42 days before you start to worry about the immune response sort of decaying and falling off. And it might be way longer than that. We might be able to delay the second dose for quite a while, but there's no science at this point to say that it's a good idea to delay it forever. That at some point we have to get enough vaccine through the system to make sure that everybody gets two doses. And yeah, you're supposed to get the second dose of the type that you got the first time because that's the way they were tested. That's what the data says. And that's what the drug approvals are based on. Uh, All right. So let's say you've already had COVID. Do you still need to get the vaccine? And if you get the vaccine and then you catch the coronavirus, can you still pass it on to somebody else? Those are really good questions. And we have better answers for some than for others. I think what's The most important thing to do is when we think about immunity, we don't want to think about it as this kind of binary, you are immune from COVID or you're not. Um, It is much more of a spectrum. And the kind of immune response that someone who got infected from the coronavirus, um, you know, out in the wild 
might have like what the the immune response I have might be very different from the one you have. Um, and that can depend on a lot of things, both just, you know, kind of about environments and genetics, but also the size of the dose, the, the amount of, um, you know, virus that, that, that you take on can also impact the course of the disease and then how your immune responds. So someone getting sick and someone who contracts the virus and say they don't get any symptoms, they might have a, a lower immune response, meaning they generate fewer antibodies or they just don't like lock in this like really intense immune memory in the way that someone who has a really um, severe case of COVID does. So you want to think about immunity as this, again, like a spectrum of of kind of the amount of antibodies you make, the kind of defenses that your body will have against it. And so vaccines also offer a different profile. Like these vaccines are designed to create antibodies to different parts of the spike protein, which is the part of the coronavirus that, that the virus uses to enter human cells. And it creates a bunch of different antibodies that attach in a bunch of different places. So someone who got infected, you know, naturally, they might have some of those antibodies, but they might not have all of them. So the short answer is that yes, people who have been previously infected should still get the vaccine um, because it just goes... It, it, it shores up your chances that you have kind of the most robust immune protection. Um, I, my grandma, who's 99 years old, got COVID over the summer um, and had a pretty mild course of it. And she got her vaccine a few weeks ago. We were all pretty excited about that. Um, the second question about transmission there's is still... Um, fairly unknown because the way that these trials were set up for the vaccines that we have did not test um, how the vaccines impacted people's ability to spread the disease. All it tested was, do the vaccines prevent severe COVID disease? So we just don't have that data, um, and it's a little bit harder to get. The kind of best evidence we have at this point is that people who are asymptomatic, so if you have a very mild course of COVID, seem to be about between 30 and 50 percent less likely to spread it than people who have symptoms. So the kind of logical leap you could make is if you get vaccinated and it prevents the most severe forms of disease, and so maybe you do get infected, but you don't have any symptoms, you may still be able to pass it on, but maybe just at a lower rate. And we still don't really know the answers, which is why... Uh, you know, public health experts are really encouraging everyone who's had a vaccine to continue to do all the things that we've been doing. So masking, social distancing, avoiding crowds, just continuing to do these things because we just really don't know the answer. And um, until we do, we have to, everyone who gets vaccinated has to act as though they could still be contagious at any point in time. Good advice. So we've already gotten some reports in the media that I'm sure our listeners have seen of people who randomly got invited to get vaccinated because maybe their local vaccination site had a surplus and they just sort of already had gone through everybody on the list and they said, look, we have all this vaccine and it's going bad. We need to get in into people. So I have an ethical question. Um, let's say that you go to Target to buy a box of Hot Pockets in the freezer section, you walk past the CVS and the health professional steps out and says, I have COVID vaccines and they're going to go bad soon. Would you like one? Now, let's say you're a perfectly healthy 28-year-old. You, uh, you live at home alone. You work at home alone. Do you say yes? Or do you encourage them to put it into somebody who is more at risk than you? I think the simple, I'll just go first. I think the simple answer is yes. 
if the choice is the vaccine is wasted or you get it, you get it. Because first of all, people are bad at calculating their own risk. Like there have been plenty of young people who have gotten incredibly sick and died with COVID. So there's that. Um, second of all, we're this is we're we're all in this together, and so it's not like you don't know that the next person who comes along is going to be quote more at risk than you are, and. Like, yes, we would obviously like to have the most vulnerable people be vaccinated first. But if the choice is between the vaccine goes into the garbage and it goes into someone who is a member of society, um, we obviously want the vaccine getting used. That's the I think that's the simple answer. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, if, if you're you're standing there with your box of Hot Pockets and you look around and no one's grandmother is sitting in a chair waiting for a vaccination, then yeah, go ahead and take it. Because any shot in, increases all of our herd immunity, right? Increases the herd immunity of the entire society. Now, that does not mean that you therefore should attempt to jump the queue if you're not in an emergency situation, right? 8.59 at night as the pharmacy is about to close and it's got a tray of vaccines that got thawed out this morning and are going in the garbage, that's a different situation than, you know, you're refreshing a vaccination registration page at three o'clock in the morning trying to get in front of somebody else's grandmother. That I would not advise. But if someone's waving it at you and no one else is there to take it, absolutely take that shot. So are there any indications thus far? I mean, we've seen some scattered reports, but any real indications that the vaccine is not being distributed equitably here in the U.S. and that privileged communities are getting it before um, other vulnerable populations or populations who are actually listed on a higher tier and should be getting it first? So the challenge with this is that we have no national data system, right? Mm -hmm. we, uh, you know, Megan was describing that one of the reasons that Israel has done so well is because they have a national healthcare system. We are the largest high income industrialized country that doesn't have a system like that. Our healthcare system is entirely retail. It's patchwork, public, private. We haven't been able to get electronic medical records to talk to each other despite 10 years of trying. That's one reason why the whole vaccine data problem has been so intense is because we're essentially building a, a national registry from the ground up. So there definitely have been anecdotal stories of people in fancy buildings or people in fancy doctor's practices or certain people who know people who are able to get out in front of the line. But is that happening uh, in any kind of broad way? there's really no data to tell us. And, and layered on top of that, you have to remember that despite what the CDC's advisory committee said to do, not every state has decided to follow those recommendations. So I live in Atlanta. Here in Georgia, you can get your shot if you're 65 or older. But one state away, it's only people 75 and up who can get the shot. So there's a lot of heterogeneity across the country even before we start talking about people doing things in some sleazy manner to get the shot first. Yeah. Another layer to this is that um, a lot of states aren't collecting vaccination data by race and ethnicity. So we only believe that there's about 17 states that are publicly reporting that. You know, we know from the data is very clear 
that um, people in Black and Latinx communities have been disproportionately impacted by this virus uh, because of systemic racism tend to live in areas that don't have access to healthcare. They tend to work jobs um, that expose them. They have higher occupational risks and they tend to live because of discriminatory housing practices and intergenerational and overcrowded homes where they're more likely to be exposed. So there's been this disproportionate burden on those populations. And one of the things that the Biden administration has talked about is ameliorating those through these vaccination programs. But if we're not collecting the data, we can't know if we're doing a good job. And the data that we do have so far from some of those states really does not look very good. Um, you know, For example, so in Mississippi, Black people account for about 15% of vaccinations, but they make up 38% of cases and 42% of deaths. And we see that in some other states as well. So at least you know, in terms of um, that's equity in that sense, um, I think both we're not doing a good job and we don't know how bad a job we're doing. Um, I think the other the other divide here is a digital one. Um, a lot of these uh, states that are rolling out, you know, ways to get a shot are doing so uh, through websites, through apps, um, through digital lotteries. And again, if we're talking about populations that are above 65, um, they the, the, the highest, like, basically the thing that gives you a highest chance of getting a vaccine is if you know someone young who is, like, digitally literate, who can get on that website and knows that you refresh and you do all these tricks and whatever whatever it is. And so there's also kind of that divide as well as an urban-rural divide because so many of these vaccination centers are around kind of academic institutions, which tend to be located in urban areas. So the equity question kind of has this really multi-dimensional facet to it. And I think in general, we're not doing a great job, is my, is my, is my general feeling. All right. Thanks to Megan and Marin. We're going to take a quick break and come back and try to answer more of your vaccine questions. Welcome back. All right, let's get right to it. We asked our listeners to send in their questions via Instagram about the vaccine. So let's go to those. Uh, here's the first one. When will young people, like 20-somethings, be able to get vaccinated? Um, and the person's name is uh, One Brown Hash, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and guess that One Brown Hash is a 20-something. <laughs> so uh, when will young people get vaccinated, do you think? Fall? end of the summer, not anytime soon. They, I think they're saying at this point that they hope that by the third quarter of this year, most of the American public should be vaccinated. I think it's really also going to kind of depend on what happens in the next week or two with these potential other authorizations. Um, we have new data coming out from Johnson & Johnson. Their shot um, is a single shot. It doesn't need this ultra cold storage last mile. Um, so if that data looks really good, like maybe that could roll out um, a little bit faster and speed up that timeline. But I think, you know, watch that space the next week or two and we'll kind of see. Um, the Biden administration announced in the last few days that they were buying up um, additional an additional 200 million doses of the um, mRNA based vaccines. Um, so, you know, as far as procurement, it looks like it will completely depend on whether or not kind of these bottlenecks um, kind of downstream from that can, can get resolved. Uh, somebody actually asked a question related to um, the different types of vaccines. Snorsky wants to know uh, specifically what the technical differences are between the various current vaccines and 
I think it would be best if you could talk about the vaccines that we currently have and the ones that are in the pipeline and how they technically differ. So the two vaccines that we currently have authorization on the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines are both what are called mRNA vaccines. mRNA is a um, strand of nucleotide that's like DNA, but like half of it, it's just one side. Um, and that's what proteins use, or that, excuse me, that's what enzymes use to make proteins. Um, so what they, the way it works is that they shoot a little bit of mRNA into your arm. And in that mRNA is the genetic code for some of that spike protein um, that we were talking about uh, that the coronavirus uses to access human cells. And so it gets taken up by the cells um, near your where you got the shot in your arm, and it starts making little bits of the spike protein. Your immune system says, hey, like, what's that? That's weird. That's not me, and starts producing antibodies and doing all the other things that uh, the immune system does when it detects a foreign uh, kind of invader. And so it doesn't produce a full infection. It's not the full virus. It can't make you sick, but it looks enough like the spike protein that it induces this immune response. Um, and that kind of vaccine, this is a first in the U.S. We've never had these kinds of vaccines um, before. So it does represent kind of a real a real leap. Um, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine um, that we're expecting data on shortly works similarly, um, except instead of using single-stranded RNA, it uses double-stranded DNA. Um, that DNA is kind of housed inside like um, kind of like an empty virus shell. You can think of it like a Trojan horse. And so that virus is what delivers that piece of, of DNA. Um, and then kind of similar from there, it produces these little bits of the spike protein and then your immune system um, kicks in. So both kind of on this genetic technology platform, just slightly different in terms of the actual molecule that winds up getting injected. This is a good question uh, from V. Marinon. For how long are the vaccines effective? Well, we don't know yet because we are only a year into this thing and only six months into having clinical trial data. So I believe that the longest, um, the longest data that we have is about six, eight, six months out on clinical trial participants. Um, and so far, it seems like it lasts that long, but we just, the durability question is we're only, the only way that we get that information is by waiting. We just, there's no way to speed up um, kind of that knowledge because we, we don't yet have a good understanding of kind of the correlation between what you see in terms of an immune response and what that means for long-term prospects. So we can't say, well, we see these cells and we see these antibodies and that means X many months of protection. We just don't, we don't have that kind of, um, that kind of knowledge. So right now it's kind of just a waiting game to see. Um, other coronaviruses, the evidence is that natural infections um, confer some sort of immune protection on the order of, you know, kind of months to years, but not probably not more than three years. Um, but it's just a super open question and one that obviously um, will have a, a big impact on, you know, kind of vaccinating our way out of this pandemic. Um, I don't know, Marin, do you have any more better information than that? You know, the reason why this is such an important question is not just how long is it going to take to damp down where we are now, right? How, how long do we have to be in this vaccinating emergency? But also, what do we do for basically the rest of our lives? Uh, is this coronavirus vaccine or this suite of coronavirus vaccines, since there's going to be several different types of them, uh, is it a thing that becomes like 
childhood vaccines where we we get the first one fairly early in our lives and then they have to be boosted periodically you know or that you you take the tetanus shot every 10 years or you you know when you're a kid you get like four rounds of the measles vaccine um it it might be a thing that we sort of have to keep lofting the ball in the air to keep us protected if this virus is going to be around long term but as megan said the virus hasn't actually been around that long and the data has been around even less long than that. And there's no shortcut to, uh, to, to answering some of these questions than just living with it and seeing what happens. All right. Thanks to everyone who sent in some questions. We're going to take another quick break and then we'll come back with our weekly recommendations. Megan Molteni, let's start with you. What's your recommendation this week? So, I am recommending embracing winter, uh, which is not an app or a TV show, but that's the thing I've been doing lately. Uh, I live in Minnesota in Minneapolis. Um, I think today we have a high of about 20 degrees. Um, but it's also, you know, we cut Minnesotans like tend to kind of feel like we need to, um, like be cold hardy and, and like love being, in frigid temperatures, but today is actually the um, first day of three of our big like seasonal events. So we have a winter carnival. Um, there's this great northern uh, festival, which is like restaurants outside grilling, like breweries opening their patios, and then there's this thing called the City of Lakes Loppet Winter Festival, which is um, the lakes that I live near all get covered in these um, candelabras that are like made out of ice, and there's ice sculptures, and everybody goes skiing at night, and it's like just like the most delightful thing and um and it turns out that like actually I'm I'm not I, there it seems like there have been a lot of people out lately like more than usual and there's actually some uh data released today that nearly 7000 people had purchased um state cross country ski passes and that all of the like ski shops are completely sold out so like it's not just me like people are really um getting out there and and it's it's really fun like the other cool thing about being here where it's cold is you can actually see people's breath so you can know if people are wearing good masks or not and kind of know where it is going and it <laughs> it both is like stressful but it also like feels like it gives you more information that you can use um so i have been i have been previously like very hunkered down in my apartment and um in the last few weeks have been trying to venture out and meet friends for skiing or um fire <laughs> fire uh pit beers and it's been like a huge boon to my mental health just to get like some sunshine and some like feel like feel some things even if those things are cold so I'm uh that's my recommendation that honestly sounds like a winter wonderland and also when you first said embracing winter I thought maybe it was a book and you quickly <laughs> clarified that it's not a piece of media but Megan I think if you ever write a novel you need to name it embracing winter <laughs> noted Marin, what's your recommendation this is going to sound so cottagecore but um uh i'm really getting into sharpening all my knives yes 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 that's a good one so you know like we were all we're all home and we're all cooking all the time and and uh, uh i accidentally like almost sliced myself a few times and all the advice is if your knives are really sharp then you are in much better shape and you will not be so much in danger so i bought a set of Japanese water stones, which are like knife sharpening stones that you actually have to soak in water before you use them. And then you put them in a cradle and there's like three of them. So they're like sharp and then like super sharp and then like extremely sharp, 
nuclearly sharp. And so uh, I spend loads of time just like grinding my knives back and forth on these. And so now I have like a set of razors in my kitchen and I'm very safe <laughs> and it's also very time consuming and it, it takes a lot of attention. So I can't think about like bad things in coronavirus when I'm sharpening my knives. So it's it's like a good meditation then. It is totally a, yeah. It's like a it's like a yeah danger meditation. It's cool. And is there a specific Waterstones kit you'd recommend? So um, yeah, and uh, I don't actually know how to say their name out loud, but it's there are these people that make pans and knives and things, and it's either Misen or Misen, but it's M I S E N. Um, and uh, they're they even they're even like in pretty colors. They're like Martha Stewart colors. It's really kind of great. That sounds awesome. That also sounds right up Mike's alley. Honestly, I see his face; like his eyes are lighting up on he's, the Zoom right yeah, now. Yeah, he's looking kind of kind this. of fascinated. Yeah. Yeah, Mike, what's your recommendation? Yeah, I, I mean, I I I do all the cooking in the house, so I obsess over sharpening my knives. Um, so I I stand for that. I stand your <laughs> knife sharpening wreck. Um, I'm going to recommend a TV show. Uh, it's called Freaks and Geeks. You might have heard of it, but you probably haven't seen it recently because uh, this is a show that w aired on Fox, uh, geez, 1999, 2000, like over 20 years ago, and uh, has since then only really ever existed on DVD because uh, there is so much music in the show that in the streaming era, it has been very expensive and therefore mostly impossible to get it streaming they would have to do uh, redo all of the music clearances for the show. So it's a cult favorite. Um, it is now available streaming on Hulu. So if you have Hulu, you can watch it. Finally, like people who like this show have been waiting a decade for this to happen. And if you have not seen it, I highly recommend checking it out. It is a comedy drama about a group of outcasts in high school in the 1980s. Uh, it is very good. It is very well written. It's very heartfelt. Uh, it is also just feels very real no matter when you went to high school or where you went to high school. It's, it really resonates. Uh, the cast is amazing. Uh, some of the people who are in the show are James Franco, Seth Rogen, Linda Cardellini, Jason Siegel, Martin Starr, Busy Phillips, Sam Levine. You will also see a lot of guest stars who you, re who you may recognize from other places. Uh, it's really just a treasure and a time capsule and one of my favorite shows. And I'm excited that I now get to rewatch it and tell everybody that they can watch it. Awesome. This is a great recommendation. Thanks, Lauren. What is yours? My recommendation this week is simple. Get vaccinated if you can. <laughs> I mean, we obviously just spent a lot of time talking about all of the complications with getting vaccinated right now and the you know complicated distrib distribution of the vaccine. But if you have the opportunity to get one, I hope you'll get the vaccine. And also, I think, you know, there are a lot of people who uh, maybe are hesitant to get the vaccine or want to wait, you know, because they're afraid uh, or just don't believe that it's going to work. So they don't want to go through the trouble. And, you know, it is probably worth having that conversation with those people in your lives and encouraging them to get vaccinated. Couldn't have said it better. All right. That's our show this week. Thank you, Megan and Marin, for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. 
and we hope you'll come back on soon. And thanks to everyone who sent us questions and to everyone who is listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes and we'll include our Twitter handles. This show is produced by the excellent Boone Ashworth. Bye for now. We'll be back next week. And until then, stay healthy. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life, or why China's targeting the US dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.